Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farsad. Technology is so pervasive in every corner of our lives in a way that it really wasn't in 1999 when a small minority of people had internet access, right? And now everything is different. That technology is changing everything. And again, in good ways and also in sometimes destructive ways that we're just now wrestling with. Okay, here goes. The big year in technology. We'll try to fit it all into one tidy final episode for 2017. Cause I like to move it, move it. Yeah, I like to move it. Boom shakalaka, stay with us. This episode is made possible by Elwood Thompson, the hands-down best grocery in Virginia, Wednesday Indian Buffet, Wine at the Beat Cafe, catering by my pal Bert. Visit them in Richmond's Cary Town and at elwoodthompson.com. Joining us from the Bloomberg mothership on the Upper East Side of Manhattan is Shira Oviday, one of my favorite technology bylines, bar none. Uh, she is with Bloomberg Gadfly, where she was poached. Uh, this was now, what, two years ago? Used to be at the Wall Street Journal at the San Francisco Bureau covering Microsoft and other business software firms. You were a deal journal. Uh, I've nagged you for the longest time to come on this show because I do love your byline. I throw tons of PDA at you on the Twitters. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. And you know your re- you know my resume better than I do. Yes, it's very nice to you know get people um, excited and and tickled pink when they start the show because you kind of get them off balance and you can ask them anything. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Flattery works. Yes, it does work. Um, I really want to get at a lot of the things that you covered, and and you know the the problem is looking back at this year with another. Gangbusters year for technology. If you look at it from the stock market perspective, the Fang stocks and Facebook, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, Netflix, Google, another banner year for them. Valuations are unbelievably rich. You have Jeff Bezos, I believe, as the richest man in the world. You posted a chart today on uh, where this stock has traveled, kind of the unlikely comeback over the past decade. You compiled the list of uh, the kind of mega trends for technology in 2017 and where we might be headed in 2018. Please start us from the very bottom, if you will. The very bottom meaning the end of the list or the, the top end of the list. list? Yes, work us up. The end of the list was the um, growing prevalence of online video bets among the tech companies, right? So we're used to kind of YouTube and Netflix for a long time, basically being all in in web video. But this year, we saw a lot more investment and and business model changes from, from Snapchat, from Twitter, from Facebook, um, from Amazon, and Apple even, um, late entry. They're all basically betting on tr- themselves by investing more in web videos. Now, who does this truly pay off for? Where is it not a loss? I understand with Netflix, if you're indispensable, if you're great, it adds to your enterprise value. Is it necessarily a really profitable thing for them to bet on multiple seasons of House of Cards or Black Mirror? Uh, Obviously, with HBO, Time Warner, the parent company, got taken out nicely by AT&T if that is indeed improved. But who is actually seeing a tangible return on investment, an immediate kind of profitable return from investing in high-quality, limited limited production uh, cable, if you will? The, the short answer is no one, or at least no one yet, right? So all we have so far are, are companies spending a lot of money, and that's been great if you're you know, Shonda Rhimes or Steven Spielberg or these other high-caliber entertainment, entertainment producers who are selling shows to Netflix or to Apple. That 
more competition for your programming is more money in your pocket. But yeah, we have yet to see a coherent web video strategy from Facebook or what that might mean for the future of the company's bottom line. Ditto for Apple, ditto for Snapchat, ditto for Twitter. Basically, it's all kind of um, TBD on whether these investments will pay off for the tech companies. Now, it's also on, on subscription stickiness, if you will. I mean, you see someone like a T-Mobile saying, you know, as, as much as you want to believe it or not, we'll throw in a Netflix subscription or increasingly if AT&T, uh, the wireless business gets this merger, this mega merger with Time Warner approved, they say we'll throw in HBO. You kind of get the sense that Amazon, which is a bit of an also ran in this business, I see your chart, you say they've spent $4.5 billion on uh, movie, TV and video programming um, versus, for example, NBC mm -hmm. Universal, which is closer to $15 billion. What's in it for Amazon? Why does Jeff Bezos, I know he throws money at lots of things. He gets a special pass from Wall Street, as you've written about before. But why Why Amazon? I mean, the, the line from Jeff Bezos for a long time about why they're investing in video, why they have a web video service, is that we win, when we win Golden Globes, it helps us sell more shoes. That's literally what Jeff Bezos said a couple of years ago at an investment conference. And what he means by that is the company says, and we on the outside have very little proof of this, but Bezos says people who use the web video service from Amazon are more likely to stick with Prime um, for a longer period of time. And those who try Prime membership and also use the video service, they're also uh, more likely to kind of um, go beyond that initial trial offer and continue to pay for Prime. So basically, he believes that it leads people to pay for Prime. Um, it leads people to stick with Prime if they're also using the web video. Again, we have little proof of that outside. And what we've seen this year is that Bezos replaced the leader of their web video service Amazon has, um, that he thought it was a little bit too niche. And they're going for kind of bigger budget, more lavish, maybe more mass popular kind of programming. Now, you've read, obviously, about the reality distortion force field of Steve Jobs. I wonder with Jeff Bezos, and you've covered deals for a long time. You've covered this company for a long time and the other companies that are now in its orbit. Um, he gets a huge pass from Wall Street. It's not like he's measured on same-store sales or retail margins or anything like that. How do you even value an Amazon? Uh, you know, it, it just market share for the sake of market share, the Jeff Bezos premium? Uh, yes. I mean, obviously, Amazon is not valued by any conventional profit metrics, because if it were, it's valued at, I don't know, 150 times forward earnings or something crazy like that. Uh, and you're right. It is very hard to value Amazon because it does not it's not expected to deliver profits the same way that a um, conventional company in America is expected to deliver profits. Um, and so what people are looking for for Amazon is a growth, which it continues to, to deliver, top line revenue growth of 20% plus every year for um, you know a company that generates $100 billion plus in revenue every year. That's incredibly impressive. And what investors are looking for is, is Amazon showing improvement in some of these areas where it's making bets? And certainly the cloud computing business that has been uh, more than paid off. Um, and some of these other areas, TBD, right? They're making a big bet in India and other um, 
developing e-commerce markets. They're making a big bet on video. They're expanding their logistics operation. And some of these are more early innings than things like the cloud computing business that's been going for 10 years and has delivered, you know, very impressive profit margins. Now, Shira, tell me, uh, you know, up to number seven, I am a suburban dad bod, and I'm rather unrepentant about that. I don't know. What is a Snapchat? <laughs> um, go find your the closest teenager and ask him or her what Snapchat is. But basically, it's an app uh, that lets people make these sort of short video diaries of their day and share them with friends and also send them back and forth as, as a way to kind of communicate with their close friends. And and look, I give Snapchat a lot of credit for being something kind of fresh and innovative and really being a new way that people, at least um, people younger than, than you and me, uh, communicate with each other. Hmm. So I, I, you know, it's, it's not had great uh, adventure in the stock market as a publicly traded company. I understand you could take a dead ox public in this market. Capital markets are so generous, but why is this company public and what is its path to profitability? Did I just see that, for example, CNN pulled its Snapchat show for lack of profitability? They did. And, and this is kind of a broader theme, right, that also relates to the web video idea that um, these media companies kind of seesaw from one tech, tech platform to another trying to figure out um, what kind of content or what kind of web video programming works. And CNN basically decided, you know, Snapchat, it was an experiment. We threw people at it just to make a kind of live show. Um, it didn't seem like there was a path to generating substantial revenue for CNN. And so they pulled out uh, other companies are continuing to plow ahead. Um, the, the question about Snapchat and its IPO is interesting because I was actually surprised once I saw Snapchat's numbers this year um, that they were trying to go public. The, the business is very young. They, they sell advertising and they really only started to do so in the last couple of years. So the business is very young. It's hard to kind of predict how well it's going to go. And the company is losing uh, the, the losses there are staggering. Uh, and it's not just uh, operating income or, or um, income statement losses. It is bleeding cash. And it basically needs kind of a, a constant replenishment from investors in order to fund itself. Uh, nevertheless, investors in March were very excited about the growth rates and the potential at Snapchat. And it was the biggest IPO of the year in terms of the value of stocks sold. Um, the problem, though, is that since then, there's been a little bit of loss of faith in Snapchat, and the stock price has come down to the point where it's trading below the price at which it sold shares in that IPO. Do you know what I think would get the stock price up, in, in all honesty, is the CEO, Evan Spiegel. Somebody needs to deck him. I mean, that smirk on his face. I know. I hope you don't get in trouble with Matt Winkler for engaging with me on He's that, but I... I he's a very confident. He's a very confident man. He just he should um, pop up five collars. Like he's now married to Miranda yes. Kerr, the yes. supermodel. Supermodel, correct. He's had awful things to say about sorority women at his at his university. He's come out he apologetic said dumb about things it. when he was a college student. Yes, but net worth three point five billion dollars for a fun app that makes no money and that smirk, man. I just somebody has to parody him on the next <laughs> season of Silicon Valley if they already haven't. Uh, yeah, but I, <laughs> I mean it's probably look it's it's probably unhealthy for your ego if people are comparing you to Steve Jobs when you're 25 years old. I think that probably yeah, does He reminds bad me things. more of that Silicon Valley. What is the 
guy, the Russ Russ Hanneman, whatever his name is, the <laughs> the VC. I just think he needs a good. Ah, I shouldn't say that. Take me to number six. Locals leg up. Facebook yeah. and Google. We know that they run the world. That they have this virtual duopoly and advertising. But it has not been easy for them to dominate in places like China uh, or in South Asia. You look at certain other services in Indonesia. If you go to Brazil. It is a uh, a locavores market, if you will. Yeah, and I think it's been really interesting to see. I think for a long time there was this belief that, um, particularly now that the developing world and large population centers in places like Indonesia and Africa and um, and the Philippines, now that they're getting online in a big way, I think there was this assumption that it would be relatively easy for the existing tech giants, whether they're American tech giants like uh, Facebook and Uber or Chinese tech giants like Xiaomi and Alibaba, it would be relatively trivial for them to expand uh, in a big way into those markets. And what we've seen instead, a lot of those countries have local technology players that are outsmarting the global tech giants, right? So this is particularly true in on-demand rides, um, the market where that Uber is in. Uber has been outfoxed in places like India, where there's a local competitor, Ola Cabs, that is tailoring its service to exactly what Indian drivers and Indian riders want and having good success. The same is true of Uber in Indonesia, where there's a, a, a highly um, successful competitor called Gojek. Uh, in Brazil, there's an on-demand ride company called 99. And it kind of dents this idea that the next wave of technology companies in the U.S., uh, whether that's Uber or Airbnb, are going to kind of steamroll into the rest of the world and be successful. And we're seeing it be not as easy as they think. And if you keep going globally, there's interesting tech companies in lots of places in you know, Korea and Japan and Australia. And in a lot of cases, those companies can do things, uh, can tailor products in ways that any global company, again, from, from China or the United States or other global technology powers, they can't really match. And, and we'll see what happens next year. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Shira Oviday. She's at Bloomberg Gadfly in New York, where somewhere in, in, in the bowels of that that's ultra-transparent building, uh, the Bloomberg mothership, she's kind of whispering into her iPhone and hoping somebody doesn't kick her out of the uh, rare private spaces that they have. I remember the place quite well. You, you, you can't quite get it out of your dreams. Um, you know, Go next to SoftBank. This is a company that is a massive player in technology exits. It's a um, the sixth largest telco operating company on the planet by revenue. It's $75 billion. And its founder, uh, Masayoshi Son, is looked at as a visionary. He's made some incredible bets over the years. He saw Uber. He saw you know, Yahoo Japan. Uh, he's also had some stumbles, I think, in his investment in, in Sprint, um, the, the D student of wireless carriers. You are positing that uh, SoftBank, which has a $100 billion technology investment fund, it's kind of being looked at as one of the, the easier routes of exit for all of these. I mean, there are so many unicorns out there and people that are just itching uh, to sell out or, or get off somehow. I, so I, try this experiment if you're going to a, a New Year's party anywhere in, in Silicon Valley is ask anyone there about 
SoftBank. And it's such a strange um, entity to ask people about because the, the company started this nearly $100 billion technology investment fund this year with money from Saudi Arabia and some other sovereign wealth funds. And it's so much money that people in technology are simultaneously confused, skeptical, greedy, and envious of what SoftBank has done. So on the one hand, $100 billion, it, it's a hard to imagine how they'll generate significant financial returns from a fund that is so big and basically has to make billion-dollar-plus bets on um, young and relatively unproven tech companies. But who knows if they'll actually make returns on that investment. But at the same time, People, uh, tech investors who are sitting on startups that maybe aren't worth as much as they were a couple of years ago or will have a tough route to an IPO or maybe need to get sold but are having a hard time uh, convincing management to sell, Masayoshi Son and SoftBank become an exit path uh, in any one of those areas, right? So you can imagine a scenario where companies that should go public or should get sold and can't, they start to see SoftBank as the go-to buyer or the buyer of last resort. And some of that is already happening. You know, this afternoon, it's it's Thursday um, as we're talking, and SoftBank just announced that they are closing in on this deal with Uber shareholders to basically buy billions of dollars worth of stock from the company's early investors and uh, early employees. And basically, you know, that gives an exit route for some of those stockholders who have been in Uber for a long time and want to cash out, but the company isn't going public for a couple of years or more. And so Masa becomes this kind of um, path to get them liquidity. Well, here's what I don't understand. I don't want to dare call him the dumb money because he's had many hits over the years and he's yeah. certainly he has a lot of, of dry powder behind him, but he's either less smart money. I mean, because we talked about Snapchat earlier. It's not hard to take your company public right now. I mean, Uber could if it wanted, even with its volatility, which we'll get into. Um, it has that name cachet. It has bankers banging on its door with pitch books. It could go public right now. It could pull the trigger on what kind of valuation? Tens of billions of dollars. Yeah, I think that's a good question. And certainly the people who have been critical of what SoftBank is doing with its $100 billion revision fund, they're saying exactly that, that SoftBank is dumb money and there's no way that they can make a return. And they're just inflating valuations of um, companies in Silicon Valley. And, and we'll see. And you're right. Um, Masa in particular... I think he has a, a long leash because of his credibility as an investor and for seeing around corners that, that, that when other people can't. Um, but yes, it is so much money. And the problem is we're going to get these kind of copycat investments maybe from other sovereign wealth funds that will just pour yet more money into the technology sector that maybe can't sustain the, um, the rich sums of money or the valuations that result. All of which leads us to number four on your list, Uber's year of hell. I'm quoting you. This year was peak scandal for Uber with controversies over its workplace culture, criminal investigations, and the belated disclosure of a serious cyber attack. Spiraling crises cost CEO Travis Kalanick his job. Uber Technologies' new CEO has promised to repair the company's reputation, but he has other problems. He's finding it hard, well, tough to take over the world. Losses remain stunningly high, and a pending stock purchase led by SoftBank, of course, make clear Uber is worth less than investors thought a couple of years ago. Now, let me understand this whenever I take an Uber. Am I am I getting like venture capital financial aid for every taxi ride? I mean, that that 
concept would not exist in a vacuum. We just saw the headline, what, last week when Uber uh, had to face the European regulators that said it must be regulated as a transport service. It can't just say we're connecting phones with other phones and we're a technology company. It's finding that it is indeed an asset-heavy company in the end. Yeah, I mean, look, as a company, I don't know about your individual ride, because in the U.S., um, uh, it seems like Uber can have a relatively profitable business. But overall, yes, Uber is a company that cannot exist, full stop, um, unless it had continuous streams of money coming in from investors who are funding its losses. Isn't that a Ponzi scheme? Yes, you you might call it a Ponzi scheme. It is also the nature of venture capital. And I think it is clear now that 2018 is the year when Uber has to become a grown-up company. And a grown-up company means a few different things. One is it obviously cannot be this place where um, you know, her sexual harassment and discrimination run amok, where people um, spy on competitors and regulators. It can't continue to flout laws or regulations, um, you know, seemingly in every market that it operates in. So it has to mature on that front. And it also has to start making money. And everybody knows this at Uber. The, the, the company hired a new CEO this year, just hired a new chief operating officer. And operating officer basically said his job is to transform a company that has not operated like a real business into one that actually runs smartly like a business, that it considers, um, are we spending too much money on this? Is this market run as efficiently as it as it should be. And so that's going to be the big transformation for Uber next year is it has to move past the kind of teenage phase of its life and start operating like a business, both in terms of its culture and its attitude about regulations and laws, and in terms of its attitude towards becoming a true profitable business. Uh, the proposed Uber stock transaction you write also includes a potential $1 billion investment at a valuation of $69 billion. That's an awfully large uh, unicorn. It, it is. And and the issue for me about Uber is, you know, I think there was, I'm stealing this, um, this line from my colleague Brad Stone here at, at Bloomberg, you know, Brad's line is, there was this kind of manifest destiny attitude about Uber that I was going to again, march into every country in the world or nearly every country in the world and become this kind of global dominant player, both in on-demand rides and in other areas like you know, restaurant delivery and logistics and uh, maybe driverless cars and things like that. And it's no, it's been clear that Uber is not going to take over the world. Uh, it's not going to take over every transportation-related sector. And so if that's the case, what is the true value of Uber if it's not a global transportation powerhouse, but a more geographically confined, uh, maybe only on-demand ride company. I find in my travels that it's the one thing that might bring Arabs and, and Israelis together. Namely, Arab and Israeli cab drivers both shake their fists at the day <laughs> Uber was founded. I feel like you go anywhere, you know, Kenya, you see fights between the, the, the traditional you know, taxi drivers and the Uber stand people at airports, their, their turf battles. People have pulled out switchblades. It's a fascinating uh, melodrama. And I actually wonder, Shira, on that on that note, that what if you know some stress test type scenario would happen? An enormous market crash, an exogenous shock, a war event, suddenly all sorts of liquidity dries up. There isn't a VC spigot or a SoftBank spigot to an Uber. What happens to the u- ubiquity of that service? 
Uh, I don't know what happens to Uber. I think that is a, an excellent question because I all get we've paid seen... to ask excellent yeah. questions. Don't you I mean, know look, it? All we've seen for the last seven years, basically, is um, young tech companies that have many of which have seemingly limitless access to cash. And um, that's not true anymore for some of the more poor performing or, or question mark kinds of tech startups. But it is still true of the startup superstars, you know, that's Uber, Airbnb, Slack, WeWork, companies like that. So if that money dries up, because there's a market crash or because there's an economic, serious economic downturn or war or something like that, um, I don't think those companies or many of those companies will not be able to stand in current form. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to the well-traveled, worldly, tech-savvy, early adopting Shira Ovide of Bloomberg Gadfly. She was formerly at the Wall Street Journal. Um, I love Bloomberg Gadfly. I told Tim O'Brien and everybody there, I don't know how you guys do it. You get up every morning and you kind of huddle and they're like, quick, Apple is uh, you know, dumping battery replacement prices. Give me 800 thought leadership words on that. Like, how do you, how do you turn it around? You are so prolific. I, I don't know. I can, all I can tell you is that we have smart people here who are trying to make sense of business and markets. No, let me for tell you world. what it is. It's people like you, and I say this out of out of envy and love at the same time that make people like me flunk out of Bloomberg. You are curve, <laughs> you are curve wreckers. I cannot hope to keep up with the productivity of you. You know, like I'm like a weekly journalist and then they put me on this daily treadmill. Of course, if you work with someone like Brad Stone and they see you churning out Pulitzer-worthy material on an every eight-hour basis, of course they're going to push people like me out. But I'm not bitter. No, I'm not bitter. In fact, I want to talk about Amazon. Uh, we round trip back to number three on your list. Who's afraid of Amazon? Everyone. Let's not forget their huge acquisition this year. I mean, this sent ripples across the planet. They took out Whole Foods of all brick-and-mortar players. And did you ever see that coming? No, I definitely did not. And, and what I told everyone um, within earshot when that deal happened was I'm officially out of the Amazon predictions game after that Whole Foods deal because it was surprising um, to me at least. And it showed that A, the outside world doesn't know what Amazon is going to do. It's very hard to predict what Amazon is going to do. And also that Amazon is willing to take home run like swings to get into sectors of the economy that it, where it thinks it can make a big impact. And look, groceries, the spending on food and beverages in the United States alone is $700 billion plus every year. And that is an alluring target for a company like Amazon. It's an, allure, it's an alluring target, but it, you know, single-digit net margins? Yes. yes what's, but what, what's the appeal? Because he's not being judged on margins anyway? He's not being judged on margins. I mean, Amazon, at least reputationally, has been a company that is very happy with high volume, low profit margins. And that does describe the groceries business. Um, but also, Whole Foods, at least, is maybe the one business that Amazon could buy that has uh, bigger, fatter profit margins than Amazon itself. The e-commerce business at Amazon, at least this year in North America, was something like 2%. And Whole Foods has five-ish percent operating profit margins. So um, it's thin, but still thicker than Amazon. I, you know, Who do you think solicited him to do this? I know Whole Foods has been struggling for a while. Your, your colleagues, I believe Tara has written about it. Um, 
they wanted an exit. I'm sure bankers were putting out overtures and, and casting about. But I always thought that if you're going to do something big and hairy, and he was given a, a blank check and reality distortion force field, he'd do something like a UPS. You'd morph into a logistics player. Why go and take out, you know, a, what is it, a 500 store uh, grocery chain? It's not. It's not really buying you. I mean, it might buy you buying power. It, it does buy you nodes across the city in high net worth destinations, but it didn't seem like so much of a bricks and mortar fit. Yeah, no, that's a fair question. So there, I think there's there's a few reasons. One is that groceries are incredibly alluring, both because, as I said, it's 700 billion plus plus dollars of spending, one of the largest categories of consumer spending in the United States. And also look at the nature of grocery shopping. It is a um, repeat business that people do it Every week, in some or more, in some cases, and there is a there's a belief in Amazon that the most important kind of spending is not these sort of one off. You know, I buy um, uh, you know an office chair one month, and then a few months later, I might buy um, a stock pot for my kitchen. The kind of spending that Amazon wants is repeat habitual business. Um, that makes people hooked and that makes people turn uh, to a company like Amazon every week. And it's a, uh, they have weekly chances to increase the size of spending I gotta tell uh, that you, people it's, are doing it, on know, Amazon. It's a bizarre world. He comes in, he swoops in, he puts in the Amazon delivery lockers. It was The whole yep. deal was approved rather rapidly. Yep. Um, it was pushed through and he reduces the prices on staple items like avocado and avocados and milk. He gets rid of that asparagus water that they got pilloried for. Um, it's a it's a real strange world where a person gets lauded for just coming in and cutting prices. And meanwhile, the other players like Kroger and uh, gosh, who else is publicly traded at this point? Uh, they're just it's a super value. They're suffering because suddenly you have the guy who's not measured on profitability hitting a sector uh, directly who is day-to-day and hour-to-hour on net margin profitability, very thin net margins. It's, it's kind of asymmetric warfare. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's a good point. And, and to me, the, the Whole Foods deal also was a little bit of a sign of weakness for Amazon. And, and it wasn't the only sign this year. So sure, they sent shutters through anything, any company related to food. You saw share prices of uh, grocery chains, of, of real estate investment trusts that have grocery chains in them. I mean, just anything related to food kind of took a giant hit when Amazon bought Whole Foods. Um, but look, it, it's also true that Amazon has been trying uh, to become successful in the grocery business for 10 years. Um, that was when they first introduced Amazon Fresh, which is their online grocery delivery service that so far remains confined to a handful of cities, including its hometown in Seattle, and by all accounts has not done very well um, and has not spread very far. So with its purchase of Whole Foods, Amazon is also signaling two things. One, we're not very successful in groceries, and we need to do this big purchase if um, we're serious about this category. And the, the second signal was, we think stores are important, right? This was a company that its entire history has only been about shopping online. And now Amazon is pivoting slightly away from that. So it owns 450 grocery stores, and executives at Amazon have said very explicitly, um, we don't think groceries is a category where online only is the future, that people do um, a mix of shopping and they want, you know, they do quick trip 
um, to quick trips to, for things like milk at convenience stores and at um, drug stores and other little shops. And, and they I gotta, do I gotta tell trips. you, it's got to terrify any CEO in this country. I see a minivan or a car, a nondescript car, pull up literally every Sunday with an Amazon package for me. Uh, forget about the postal service. Forget about the UPS. These guys make it up if it doesn't exist out there. They could just conjure it up out of thin air. To I mean, totally right. Look, a Amazon is a beast in online shopping, but also remember, look, 90 plus percent of all U.S. retail sales still, st still happen in a physical store. And Amazon right now does not have an opportunity to touch that 90%. So that means either online shopping, uh, sorry, shopping needs to shift even more towards Amazon's wheelhouse and online, or Amazon has to go out and open more stores to get that 90% of sales that, that happen um, in physical retail. And um, neither one of those is super easy. So yes, Amazon is a beast. Uh, a lot of opportunity is ahead, but it definitely gets harder from here, uh, if only because their competitors are now starting to wake up for the first time, really, in e-commerce. Um, you're, you're seeing Home Depot and Walmart and others um, doing a lot more investments in their e-commerce operations and fulfillment operations. And in many cases, it seems to be working. So it's it's not like Amazon is going to have e-commerce to itself anymore um, in a way that it, it kind of did, certainly for the last few years. Shira, talk to me about Me Too. This was the Time Magazine Person of the Year topic, if you will. I mean, the enormous, enormous pushback from um, uh, women who have been sexually harassed, sexually abused uh, by uh, people in positions of power across media, politics, corporate America, it, it really hit Hollywood hard. Um, now, you wrote that in your number two, Me Too in Technology, the industry was ensnared in the horrible revelations about sexual misconduct and discrimination, combined with several years of data that showed that most tech employees are white or Asian men. The disclosures have eroded technology's myth that those with the best ideas and work ethic succeed. Uh, we saw uh, accusations from a former Google employee that tech companies are silencing people who disagree with the typical socially liberal ethos in Silicon Valley. And this is still happening at the very end of the year. This is a drip, 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 daily, daily, daily thing that you see um, huge threads on, on Twitter. I mean, people admitting things or pointing the finger or breaking stories. Uh, this never, I imagine, could have happened without social media. No, I think that's right. I, I think that um, social media has sort of made people feel less alone, both in, in good ways and in bad ways. And it, it does mean that, um, you know, people get called out for all, all kinds of misconduct, again, in, in mostly positive ways. And it was interesting to see in the tech industry, it, it was not the focus of this um, uh, kind of reporting on sexual misconduct or harassment, um, you know, certainly media and entertainment, I think, um, was more in the spotlight this year. But we did see a number of venture capitalists um, in particular who got pushed out of their jobs for harassing women or, or uh, being discriminatory towards women. And look, I think there's probably more to come. And the conversation the last few years in the technology industry has basically been, look, this is an industry where the workforces are not very diverse. A lot of these companies are historically have been founded by, um, by white men. And maybe we're seeing some of the problems 
um, in the technology industry of, of products that sow discrimination, sow harassment, allow propaganda to, to fester. Um, maybe one cause of that is that the workforces are not as diverse as they could be, and they don't take into account the full spectrum of um, of knowledge in the global world. You know, and I'm gonna I'm gonna personally add something semi-controversial to that. I think that this industry, you talk about, you know, a couple of years ago with talking about revenge of the nerd, right? Revenge of the tech bro. This may have been part and parcel of that revenge that they, uh, a lot of guys who were not popular in junior high and high school who feel like now that they have the brass ring, they can use it. I mean, you've seen it at places like Vox. You've seen it uh, across Silicon Valley. Um, You've seen it in Hollywood. I mean, people who uh, just seem to want to uh, use any influence they have through maybe they you know they got their jobs through merit or or um, I don't know uh, legitimate uh, ambition that want to take revenge on people right now and this seems to be the year of of the pushback on that and I don't know what it is about social media in particular that lends itself to people admitting things we used to have AOL Instant Messenger which would leave you leave a basic status on it or Facebook 10 years ago Robin Farzad is blah 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 now it's unpacked into the long medium post into the 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 20 post Twitter thread um, we seem to be wanting to admit a lot more than we used to uh, I don't know. Do people are people admitting to misconduct so much as they are forced to admit misconduct? Not, so, not, not admitting, but pointing the finger to them, being being victims of that misconduct. I think is the the virality. The virality of it is people that lived in silence for the longest time see yeah. the cracks come out and and little peeps come out and and people come out and and say things. I think about. The actress Selma Blair, who yeah. confessed her story in the Time magazine year-end issue, who sat on that in isolation for the longest time, or people who – we knew Harvey Weinstein was a difficult guy or he was a, a bully, but did, did we know that he was uh, you know, a person who would arguably sexually assault people uh, and use that bullying to, to corner and, and physically assault people? I mean this really – um, it showed you kind of the wildfire nature of technology. I know I said that earlier, but I can't seem to stress it enough. No, I mean, look, it was definitely true that people who didn't have a voice for a long time um, found ways this year to have a voice, and that included online. And, and to me, the single most interesting piece of news in the technology industry this year was early this year, Susan Fowler, who was a a, a young woman in her 20s who worked at Uber as an engineer for a year or so. She published this, um, this blog post online that basically with incredible detail, I would say unemotional detail, basically chronicled episodes of discrimination, harassment, and just kind of petty workplace abuses that happened at Uber. And it set off a firestorm, both inside of Uber and in the rest of the tech industry, that to this day, I cannot really explain. Uh, And Susan Fowler, you mentioned that Me Too kind of Time magazine cover story. So she was among the women that Time profiled for that piece. And I I, I think it was interesting to hear her say that she was somewhat um, intentional about what she did, right? She knew that to get the most attention, she could not be emotional about uh, these abuses that she experienced at Uber, that she had to be um, both meticulous about recording them in real time and, and 
getting documentation so there was proof and also in writing about them in an unemotional way so people wouldn't think she was, you know, a hysterical woman to use a a terrible cliche. And I think, you know, that single episode um, was so surprising and powerful and maybe people were more inclined to 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 believe Fowler because um, of Uber's history of being kind of a, a troubled workplace. But it was so interesting to me to see how that spread virally um, when other cases of discrimination or um, including a long lawsuit by Ellen Powell, the former venture, venture capitalist, uh, you know, those I don't think got traction in the same way that Susan Fowler's blog post did. Hmm. And that wildfire actually continues. I mean, the, the year might be coming to a calendar end, but this seems to be a, a constantly brewing and percolating thing uh, with social media, Twitter especially, being that accelerant. Take us to your number one headline. So this was the number one theme in tech for me, and I, I don't think it was even close that uh, the tech reckoning, as I call it, which is you know, there was this realization both inside and outside the technology industry this year that technology products and services have a serious dark side. And I think people in the tech industry are just now trying to figure out what to do about it, right? We saw after, uh, before, during, and after the election of, of Donald Trump or the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom, some of the elections in France, that social media, Facebook in particular, became these hotbeds for misinformation, sometimes intentional misinformation on the part of, you know, uh, Kremlin-backed groups in Russia. And, you know, we just saw that the same kind of virality that has an upside, right, where it's women sharing their stories about harassment, the downside of that virality is that when you have misinformation that people are eager to latch onto, that also spreads like wildfire and it makes society I mean, it makes society worse off. And you can repeat that in many countries in the world. We saw the Rohingya um, minority in in Asia this year. Um, there were Facebook campaigns that basically spread uh, misinformation about um, and discrimination about them. We, we saw in the Philippines, uh, their leader also used Facebook in ways that basically um, harassed critics of his administration and spread misinformation about them. So you can go nearly every country in the world, and we saw the ill effects of social media in a big way. And it wasn't just social media. You know, uh, YouTube had a lot of scandals about um, how much it promoted terrorism videos or creepy videos about children that were maybe bordering on um, child abuse. We saw Twitter trying, um, not very successfully, cracking down on trolls and harassment on its platform. We saw Apple uh, come to grips with the downsides of people being addicted to their phones and all kinds of new research coming out uh, about you know, addiction to smartphones and what that does to brains, particularly of children, maybe makes them depressed. So, you know, we're starting to see now uh, that technology is now invading so many corners of our life um, in ways that are both good, but also really bad. And we haven't yet fully figured out how to um, adjust for the downsides in a way that allows us to get the benefit of technology without, you know, being crushed to death by it. 
You could always get a flip phone like a Motorola Razor. I don't think any wireless carrier supports them anymore. No, look, I have a smartphone too, but I, I, it, it's just um, it, it's become hard to ignore some of the downsides of technology. And the big companies, I think, got the most attention. The, the technology companies are now now comprise seven of the ten uh, most valuable publicly traded companies in the world. Uh, that includes companies like Facebook in the U.S. and Apple, uh, and also Tencent in China and Alibaba in China. And you know the fact is, with great power comes great responsibility and great scrutiny of those tech companies. And I think we're just starting to see the early innings of that reckoning. Well, I'm old enough, young lady, to remember the great tech boom of 1999 and how that led to the heartbreak of 2000 to 2002. We certainly have not had a a, a correction, a humbling of of technology writ large in the longest time. So um, you see pundits start every year saying that this is too big, it's too big, it's going to happen, and yet you get another 20, 25% year. Yeah, and look, I think what's different now, I mean, there's a lot of things that are different now than there were in 1999, but technology is so pervasive in every corner of our lives in a way that it really wasn't in 1999 when a small minority of people had internet access, right? And and now, you know, everything is different. That that technology is changing everything. Um, and again, in good ways and also in sometimes destructive ways that we're just now wrestling with. Shira Oviday, I am so grateful that I finally snagged you on my uh, slumming broadcast, full disclosure. Uh, I love your byline. I normally have a very cute way of, of taking it out and using a seg and everything, but I'm so in awe of how prolific you are and how uh, uh, well-spoken you are and well-written you are on, on such a variety of topics from Amazon to retail to software to uh, you know capital market stuff. So keep on keeping on. Thank you, Robin. I love your show, and I'm glad I finally got a chance to be on it. Shucks. Full disclosure, you can find us on the Twitters at Full D Radio and on Facebook.com slash Full D Radio. Please like us. No, love us. I need your love and validation on NPR One. There is a button for that. And on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next year. Next year.